Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Mojiella Wodeal. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. Hey, it's Kimberly, host of the Start Me Up podcast. If you like your politics with some loose talk and salty language, you're going to love my show. I interview the coolest people like Mary Trump, Kathy Griffin, and DNC chair Jamie Harrison. The Start Me Up podcast has an easygoing, casual style and a strong emphasis on left-leaning politics. We also have frank discussions about sex and more than a few spirited rants. Just visit patreon.com slash startmeup or wherever you get your podcasts and start listening today. Hey all, this is Glenn Kirshner, and you're listening to Muller She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Muller She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill. And today we have an interview with Pete Strzok about the extradition of 2016 Russian hacker Kleusion. Stick around after that for the Fantasy Indictment League picks. Hope you enjoy it. Dames and господа. Это Prevail, и ваш ведущий Грег Олиар. I'm Greg Oliar, and this is Prevail. There's a goal here, which is to make sure that Vladimir Putin not only stays in power, but that they're allowed to continue stealing. When you look at Brexit and you say, what might have also happened when Leah was being interrogated? Sort of like Brexit. <laughs> a bunch of confused people following orders really having no idea what they were doing. Tax avoidance on that level is only serving the interests, frankly, of a lot of mobsters and corrupt governments. The inherent question is, is Maria Butina a spy? And Maria Butina was in charge of espionage. So that's a difficult place to start to begin with. Those intangibles that those people want to have, we can't take advantage of that in dealing with Russia and China and Iran. If we can't do that, then you know what? Maybe we don't deserve to continue. Prevail with Greg Oliar every Friday. Everybody, welcome back. Happy to be joined today by the author of Compromised, Pete Strzok. Pete, how are you? I'm good, Allison. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. This is turning into the Pete and Allison show. I feel like I should be paying you um, for all these appearances. I appreciate your time on this, but uh, these things keep dropping, and now we're learning. Uh, well, I mean, we had learned last week about the extradition of a man named Clusion, uh, but uh, there's a little bit more. Uh, going on uh, with this and what he might be able to reveal to American prosecutors about what happened with the hack in 2016, the Russian hack in 2016. Can you talk a little bit about what this could mean for for prosecutors? It it 
potentially could mean a lot. And I, I would say not just for prosecutors, but for the U.S. government and intelligence community in particular. I think there's some things like people over index. And I, you know, I'm, I'm in a tiny way to blame because of the character limit on um, Twitter about pointing to when we'll know what happened with regard to the campaign polling data that Manafort provided uh, to Kalemnik or possibly potentially could. But I think there's people, folks need to remember, you know, it's pretty clearly established, certainly publicly and, and much more within the U.S. government intelligence community that the Russians were behind the hacks of the DNC, were behind the hacks of the DCCC, were behind uh, release of information via intermediaries, primarily WikiLeaks and Julian Assange to get that data out. So that we, we don't need somebody to come in and say, oh, you know, I've got information about this. Now, it could be helpful to analysts within the community if he comes in, and he says, oh, you know, these people in St. Petersburg, they were using Dell laptops and not Lenovo laptops. And, you know, there, there may be grace notes around the outside that that are very valuable from an intelligence perspective. But I think the much bigger potential areas of interest that he has are information surrounding what was going on on the Russian side of things with all the interaction between these various elements of the Trump campaign and Russia. And a couple of things really stand out potentially that he might have information about. The first is, you know, to the extent that the polling information that was released by Manafort via Rick Gates to most of your listeners hopefully know, Konstantin Klimnik, what he did, who he was working for, where that information went, how, and if the Russian government used that, um, that would be very interesting because a lot of what we know and we as big U.S. government, we know what happened with the information activities up until the time it leaves the possession of these various individuals who are in and around the Trump campaign and administration. We don't know what happens on the other side. Um, so he could provide information about that. He certainly, I think, one of the most likely places he might provide information is specifically about Konstantin Kalimnik. Um, DOJ, I think it was about a year ago, they sort of put out or, or, or pushed up the, the public visibility of the, the fact that he was wanted, published it or republished a, a wanted poster and a reward for information leading to his arrest. I think it is a, a reasonable possibility that there's a sealed indictment for Kalimnik. I think that to the extent that people can talk about what he did uh, and who he is, um, there may be information there. And then certainly, you know, stepping outside of just the straight Russian interference in 2016, there's some indication he might have information about what the GRU was doing in Western Europe. I mean, they were engaged in lethal activities. I think there's been a lot of public reporting through Bellingcat and others about the activities in Switzerland, their activities in Germany. Certainly, you know, there's public information about the, you know, the attempted uh, assassinations in the UK. So to the extent that he's got some visibility into broader GRU activities beyond just hacking, that might be interesting. I don't know whether that's an accurate assumption that some people are making, but it's a, uh, there isn't for, you know, things there. And outside of that, just the whole criminal scheme is, is really fascinating the way they went about sort of targeting the weak underbelly of the U S financial system and took advantage of that in a way that, um, is, is both clever and concerning. And so I'm glad that, uh, and a little bit curious and we can talk about like how it was that he managed to get, find himself extradited, but um, there's, I think, a lot potentially to come. Now, with the potential pressure that we could put on him to get information, uh, would, would that be for law enforcement purposes or more about just getting to the bottom of things to prevent it from happening again uh, because of the statute of limitations? Or can you, like you said, place a, an, a, an indictment 
under seal, like for Manafort, for example, with the Kalimnik stuff, before you get the final pieces of the puzzle, just to stop that statute of limitations clock? Or is is there some sort of a policy that says, you know, you can't just file an indictment under seal to stop a statute of limitations clock, you got to have the evidence to file the indictment? Well, no, you need evidence before you're going to file a charge. So like anytime you're going to have a sealed indictment um, or, or a complaint, you, you've got to have the evidence in hand to do it. You're not going to ever get a charging document with stuff, evidence you think prospectively you're going to be able to get. You don't bring those charges unless you have the evidence in hand that you need. So I don't think that there's anything that this is going to firm up, you know, a place where the government went out on a limb to charge somebody that doesn't happen. So if there are charges that exist out there, they exist because the government is ready to, to charge it. Now, what will happen is the government will increase charges. And a great example of that is Julian Assange. The initial charges for Assange were comparatively limited. And as the government did investigation, as they obtained additional information, that's where you saw a much more robust set of charges that were brought in against Assange in the form of superseding indictments that really dive into sort of the nasty, you know, non-journalistic behavior that he was engaged in, in terms of allegedly encouraging hacking, in terms of allegedly assisting Ed Snowden getting out of of the U.S., you know, via assistance from WikiLeaks. So it it is certainly possible that, well, there may not be existing charges. If there are, you know, a certain set of charges, information he may have or be able to point the government to may allow a much more robust set of criminal charges. And that's just criminal cooperation, right? I mean, that is something where I'm certain that folks within the Department of Justice, folks within the Securities and Exchange Commission are going to be looking to say, okay, what was your scheme? Who else was involved? Um, not only, you know, what can we do to build charges or shore up our charges, what can we do to protect ourselves here, but there's going to also be, I mean, cooperation doesn't just have to be from a criminal perspective. You can get per cooperation from providing intelligence information. So there will be, you know, I, I think a, when he gets here and if, and when he, you know, and he does have an incentive to cooperate because the charges are, are significant. And I don't think, you know, if he can work down a potential jail sentence, um, it's in his interest to do so. So. I would I would think there will be a you know a very interesting set of discussions within the U.S. government if it, he comes to the table with a proffer. You're not just going to have the criminal authorities and civil authorities wanting to talk to him. You're going to have elements of the U.S. intelligence community wanting to talk to him as well. And, and what about some kind of protection? I mean, if if he does obviously assist the United States, he's going to if he hadn't already fallen out of favor. With Putin, he definitely will by then and will probably become a very wanted and marked person. Yeah, and that's a really, that, that certainly is possible. And that gets into a very complex um, environment very, very quickly because we've seen people like that. You know, what he has, and there's some, I've seen some speculation online that talks about the way and the manner that, in particular, the, the DOJ um, charging document was worded, that it almost seems to be in some places an attempt to show how he was scamming not only people within you know taking advantage of the u.s filing system you know the edgar filing system of the sec but also how he might have been scamming his own clients in russia more than they knew and so to create almost a little bit of tension or a little bit of friction between him and his notional you know not co-conspirators but protectors or people who would ordinarily be interested in um taking care of him in Russia and that that might explain kind of this half-assed job by his attorney kind of, you know, in, in lodging the appeal in Europe, fighting one of the appeals, fighting his extradition, apparently sent it in by mail. So it arrived late and there's some question, okay, that whether or not that was malpractice, if he had really wanted to stay 
and fight it, he could have. Did this provide him a fig leaf to say, oh, I tried, I tried to prevent extradition, but you know, I sort of did it in a half-hearted way so that I was able to get extradited. And I don't know, because there are people, you know, when you look at um, folks in Russia, even people who anger those in power, what was, I forget her name, her, her first name was like Nastya, she was somebody I want uh, to say. Nastya Rybka. Right. And she got like wrapped up and she had all kinds of enemies and she was threatening to dish and she did dish a little bit. And then they get the grabs on her and they bring her back to Moscow and you expect, oh, God, she's going to be dead in the ditch. But she's not. So the question is, like, you know, you can have the totality information that you have can be so large that even if you dish and cooperate in a limited respect, there's still enough you got tucked away and placed somewhere for safekeeping that you can go back and say, hey, look, it was bad. But if you really want to like, you know, if I show up dead in the ditch, this is automatically going to get released and it's 100 times worse. So understanding how to navigate within Russia, the environment of, you know, whether or not you're a snitch and what that really looks like and what that means is a really, really complex environment. And I would hesitate to have any absolute statement about, oh, if he comes here and he cooperates, he's a dead man if he ever leaves the United States. I I, I don't know that that's necessarily true. Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of the Talking Feds podcast, a weekly roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Most news commentary is delivered in 90-second sound bites that just scratch the surface of a new development, not Talking Feds. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Fed's favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond. We dig deep, but keep it fun. Plus sidebars detailing important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities, such as Robert De Niro explaining whether the president can pardon himself, and Carol King explaining whether members of Congress can be disqualified from higher office, and music by Philip Glass. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Yeah, well, I appreciate that insight. I would definitely take your expertise. Over. You knew you knew Ripka like that. That's impressive. <laughs> that was the sex coach. You know, she was in the t- <laughs> right I, running running courses in Thailand. Yeah. Was it? Yeah, yeah, you got it. <laughs> we we remember things like sex. And the, yeah, well, yeah, sure. And the yacht was it Deripaska's yacht? Was he the? It was. It was Deripaska's yeah. boat, and uh, she was out there filming that. That apparently the handoff of Kalimnik's stuff that he got from Manafort, uh, following flight paths, and then Navalny got a hold of the tape, and we know where he is now. Uh, and not, I'm not saying just because of that, but you know, <laughs> um, we follow we followed that a little close. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate all your insight on that. We're going to keep following this story. I think it's interesting that his name sounds like collusion. <laughs> um, something, a word that uh, we uh, we had many, many discussions about during during the Mueller investigation. Uh, I wanted to move on before I let you go, though. We just finished watching, um, to shift gears, we just finished watching some remarks given to Department of Justice employees by Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, about... Well, you know, I was looking, I was listening to it for his update on the January 6th insurrection investigation, but he, he tied it in with quite a few different things, uh, including the big lie, violent extremism, uh, now that uh, voting rights are under attack now because of the big lie. I mean, he tied it all together very well. I was wondering what your initial thoughts were. I was very impressed by the remarks. Uh, I think he covered what we need to cover, but you and I had had a discussion before that he should be talking about 
the resources that he's putting on this. Uh, and that seemed to be missing. Uh, he, he addressed everything else I wanted him to address. And he talked about the size and scope, 15 terabytes, you know, 22,000 hours of video, uh, et cetera. He talked about the size and scope, but didn't really say what he was throwing at it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, my, my initial thought is it's exactly what I expected. Um, it is what you want. You know, and again, this was a speech to the Department of Justice and the FBI, although he obviously understood full well that it was being carried live to the American people. So I think his message was given in the context of his audience and was given in the context of what, you know, he thinks an attorney general should be saying and kind of laying out to reinforce to both the department as well as to the American public. This is what we do. This is how we do it. And this is what you can expect from us. So uh, it, it was measured. It was what I would expect a former distinguished judge, now attorney general to say, I, and I'm glad he did it. And I hope he continues to do it. There's clearly a lot of uh, clamoring for some sort of statement out of the department. I think this is appropriate. I don't know that he needs to be out there every month talking about it, but I hope this isn't the last. Um, I, I share your concern that I, I am, and, and we've talked about this before on your podcast, you know, I have no doubt that the people at the ground level, the investigators, agents, analysts, prosecutors are working their tails off. I have some concern about whether or not that is when you step up to a higher level, you know, the questions if I were a senator or somebody asking that of him, you know, did you go out, have you asked your investigators and prosecutors, is there any more work you could be doing right now if you had more attorneys, more agents, more analysts? Have you gone to Congress and asked for additional resources? Have you gone to the judiciary and said, we are facing another wave of COVID. We need extraordinary measures to stand up temporary, you know, additional courthouses and bring in judges because, you know, we all understand there is a flow, an ebb and flow to the course of a criminal case that can't be accelerated. However, if we're faced with potentially having to shut things down due to COVID or the things we can do to maintain the pace. And again, that sense of, you know, we're all busy. You know, he said this is one of the busiest or one of the most, you know, largest cases in the, in the history. Well, no, it's the largest. Let's, let's call it. <laughs> I mean, there, there is nothing close in American history to an investigation of this size, period, full stop. You know, I am concerned he, you know, I was looking at some of the numbers. I think he threw out, you know, they've done 5,000 subpoenas so far. And, you know, numbers lie, so I hesitate to do this. But you compare and contrast that to Mueller, who I think did 2,800 subpoenas. Now, Mueller, that was 675 days, so not quite two years. So if you've got Mueller, who's got a team by the number of attorneys that Garland talked about, that was anywhere a sixth, the seventh, and eighth of the size of what DOJ is doing right now, that number of subpoenas actually strikes me for the January 6th is very, very small. And so the question is, okay, so you know that's a data point, and it's dangerous to do any sort of extrapolation, but what it doesn't it, it doesn't comfort me that that small number has a possibility of playing into the sense that the investigative teams are overwhelmed by the volume of information and investigative stuff they have to do. And if you are facing all these terabytes and terabytes of video coverage and tips coming in, if you are so overwhelmed that you're barely keeping your head above water or not keeping your head above water in terms of analyzing and going through what you've got, your appetite to go out and say more. I mean, it's one thing if I'm saying, okay, I know you're in there, so let's great. Let's just get your geolocation fencing data from your Google account and, and you stop there. But if I had more resources, I might say, well, let's Allison, let's get her geolocation data, but let's also get, you know, her financial data and let's get her credit card statements and let's see where you moved. And if you have more people, you can get a more robust picture. Now, you know, the danger is if you're just some mope who found yourself on the floor you know, in the rotunda somewhere, maybe we don't need it. But I do worry. I, I continue to be worried that the 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 
approach and the view of this isn't necessarily carrying the same sense of urgency that I might hope. And some of that, you know, his description started on January 6th. These people advanced and they did this and they did this. Now, he got to the point where saying we're going to hold people accountable whether or not they were there on the 6th. But what he didn't do is he didn't say, well, there was planning for this that started in December. There were communications and advocating for people to come to the nation's capital that occurred. You know, it, 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 in other words, the narrative starts January 6th. Well, the fact of the matter is, when you look at the broad theory of the case, this was an attempted an attempt to maintain power illegally by disrupting the certification of the vote that began well in advance of January 6th. So, mm. I mean, he, he points to that or he pointed to that in his comments, but I would have liked to have seen even a little bit more of an emphasis of saying like, look, this isn't, you know, people did bad things on the 6th. This is a broad conspiracy that we're going to get to that led up to January 6th exploded on January 6th. And, you know, we're trying to figure out what happened. So again, it's what I expected. I'm glad he did it. Yeah. I hope he continues to speak, but um, things things I, I would like to hear that didn't. And I continue to be concerned about the, the kind of overall very high level sense of urgency about how we're approaching this. Yeah. I mean, if you have to go through 22,000 hours of video, for example, uh, just another single number that he had mentioned, which he did. Um, tell, like, tell me who's doing that, and is it taking away from the fact that is that why you only have five thousand subpoenas and you're expecting more? I mean, he did say we're going as fast as we can, but like, uh, yeah, it's a little more information. I think would have gone a long way. Yep, agreed. And I, you know, as fast as we can. <laughs> That, that is one of those things that's so hard as a leader to get a sense of when you walk into a, a team or when you're leading a team and they're saying we're going as fast as we can, that's the natural response. And so the question is, are they like Scotty in the engine room of the Star Trek where it's like, oh, we're going as fast as we can? They're like, bullshit. You got another 20%. So go faster. Or is it truly we're going as fast as we can. And if you double the number of people we have, we, we still couldn't go any faster. And that's the, that is the question that worries me the most because I, you know, unless you're in there asking those questions, you know, I, I get, you know, you have to produce discovery. You have to give people the time to do it. The court will only, you know, schedule various hearings and milestones based on the pace that we have to do. And you have to solve these cases before you move up to the next level. You're not going to accelerate that pace. But there are all these other things on the investigative side that you can scope up potentially. Now, maybe maybe that's been done, but I, I still have a, after the speech, I still have an Let uncomfortable- if it's been done, you know? Yeah. And, and by the time this show airs and this interview airs, uh, we will have also heard Biden's remarks, which happened tomorrow on the actual anniversary of 1-6. He's going to be addressing- the urgency of of the one six investigation. Maybe, perhaps he will discuss resources, uh, as he may be the one to allocate those. Uh, and I I know that Merrick Garland mentioned Congress, like, hey, get off your ass and give us the voting rights stuff that we need. But he didn't say, give us get off your ass and give us the money we need to get the investigation done. So we'll we'll see. Maybe there'll be more remarks to come. And I I also am hoping and encouraging and writing and tweeting and sending letters to the the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. saying, hey. Maybe you can keep us updated via press conference on what's going on with the 1-6 investigation, at least just what, what's been done, not necessarily what you're going to do, because obviously, and Merrick Garland explained today, we can't do that. It can, it can jeopardize future investigations, and it, it can also 
shit on people's civil rights. Uh, and so we have to be very careful about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that Biden needs to be careful. I hope he is careful. What we don't want is, you know, a president out there saying, I'm demanding DOJ go, you know, I, I don't want any president talking about what he does or doesn't want DOJ to do. So, um, and hopefully, you know, and then, you know, the couple on a couple of times, Biden sort of weighed in a little bit. He quickly backtracked. And, you know, again, I think understanding that trying to return the, the a sense of normalcy of the independence of DOJ from the shit show that was the Trump administration in that regard, I think is a, is a positive thing. So I, I hope, and I expect Biden will talk about the severity of January 6th and the stress it's placed on our society and continues to place and that the threat hasn't gone away and that, you know, we need to try and cool things down. Um, but yeah, I'm curious. And is Trump, is Trump still speaking? No, he canceled his event. He is doing a rally in Arizona ah. though on, on the 6th. So uh, and then he put out a statement about why he canceled or why he didn't cancel the event. He said it had nothing to do with everybody finding out about Sean Hannity's texts. I just and then he just didn't really say much with a bunch of words, as he usually does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, he'll, he'll, he won't avoid the crowd and the, the adoring um, cheers. So we'll see what happens. I have no expectation that he's going to stay within any sort of scripted comments. So that'll be interesting as well to uh, find out. Do you think Hannity's going to take the January 6th committee up on their offer to uh, come in and talk? I don't know. I don't, I, I'm mm, probably not. Uh, I think he's going to wave his First Amendment rights around, even though they don't really have anything to do with it. I mean, he's he's I said earlier, he's as much of a journalist as Julian Assange is. But um, but, you know, hey, there are First Amendment uh, concerns, which is why the committee said we don't want any of your quote unquote news gathering um, information. We, we want to talk to you as a actual political advisor to the White House, which is what you were that day. And right. So, and not not a, a proper media propaganda arm of you know state state media that was the fact uh, back then. But no, that's I'm curious. I don't know that he will, but you know, it also could be a initial first stage of saying, look, we offered, we tried in good faith to talk to you and you said no. So if only papering the record, maybe that's what they're doing. I don't know. Yeah, that's usually what my feeling is, is that they, hey, so if they go to court and uh, get a conviction, there's no, hey, they didn't try to come at me. They, there was no due process. They just subpoenaed me immediately. And, you know, that whole thing. When you, I, I, I remember we sat through so many of these in the Mueller investigation of people trying to just serve people subpoenas and summons and they had to find him if they couldn't find him they had to try a hundred times and then they could ask the judge if they could do it by email and then hey can we maybe call him and they're like no you got to find him and it was that was all to establish to, to establish the paper you know right right and i think that may be what they're doing here so we shall see yeah we'll see well i appreciate your time today it's always great to talk to you yep you too and uh as soon as i get my soros money i'll send you some of it for, <laughs> for continuing to be on my show i appreciate that uh we'll have our deep state meeting next tuesday and uh <laughs> yeah nice everybody seriously needs to get the book compromise it's really a really incredible book i'm so glad you wrote it and i appreciate your time today thanks great thank you all right everybody it's time for the fantasy indictment league i'm gonna be indicted no it is gonna be a indicted! honey dick indicted Honey, I'm gonna be oh, they can't. It's going to be okay. Just calm down. I can't calm down. I'm going to be a And my first pick this week is superseding indictments for the Trump Organization for OCA, or Little Rico, from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Next up, I think we might hear about Rudy Tonzing, along with Derek Harvey and DeGeneva, from that entire investigation in the Southern District of New York. Then down to the Middle District of Florida, where we have Gates, L.A. Key, and Engels. 
And then I think we might hear something about Eric Prince. I don't really want to give too much away. And then finally, Tom Barrick, either superseding uh, or maybe a plea agreement in the Eastern District of New York. Where's Weissman, I wonder? All right. Thank you so much for listening today. I appreciate you. If you want to become a patron of this show, the MSW Book Club, which we're beginning the book Corruptible by Brian Kloss this week, and also the Daily Beans, you can get all the premium ad-free feeds for one low monthly payment of just three bucks, uh, 36 bucks a year. And uh, that money really keeps us afloat, helps us pay our people awesome wages, gives them health care, all that good stuff. So you can do that by going to patreon.com slash Mueller, she wrote. And uh, everybody will be back tomorrow with the Daily Beans and uh, Dana. And, you know, uh, we'll have an interview with Hugo Lowell about his scoop in The Guardian regarding the 1-6 committee. So until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been A.G., and this is Muller She Wrote. Muller She Wrote is written and produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media. Sound design and engineering are by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder at Moxie Design Studios. Muller She Wrote is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Hi, I'm Dan Dunn, host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, the most wildly entertaining adult beverage-themed podcast in the history of the medium. That's right, the boozy best of the best, baby. And we have the cool celebrity promos to prove it. Check this out. Hi, I'm Allison Janney, and you're here with me on What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And that's my sexy voice. Boom. Boom is right, Academy Award winner Allison Janney. As you can see, celebrities just love this show. How cool is that? Hey, this is Scotty Pippen, and you're listening to The Dan Dunn Show. And, wait, hold on. The name of the show is what? All right, sure. Scotty Pippen momentarily forgot the show's name, but there's a first time for everything. Hey, everyone, this is Scoot McNary. I'm here with Dan Dunn on What Are You Drinking? What's it called again? Fine, twice. But famous people really do love this show. Hi, this is Will Forte, and you're, for some reason, listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. What do you mean for some reason, Will Forte? What's going on? Hi, this is Kurt Russell. Listen, I escaped from New York, but I couldn't get the hell out of Dan Dunn's happy hour. Please send help. Send help? Oh, come on, Kurt Russell. Can somebody out there please help me? I'm Dita Von Tees, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. <laughs> Let me try one more time. Come on. Is that oh, right? What we're no, drinking? It's amazing. It, it's it amazing. Right, it's just... Is it right? Ah, that's better. So be like Dita Von Teese, friends, and listen to what we're drinking with Dan Dunn, available wherever you get your podcasts. MSW Media. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay.
Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.